I'm not much of a prophet, but I would be pretty confident to say that not many people in this room got up this morning thinking, I wonder what Obadiah is all about. <laughs> There's probably somebody in the room who thought it was a 1960s rock band or something. Um, so this morning we uh, continue our ordinary time series in the Minor Prophets, seeking to, to look at the middle line taking the light that we have in Christ and uh, a 2,000-year growing understanding of God and his kingdom and what he's doing on the earth, using that light to illumine the things that these ancient prophets had to say with the hope that they might give us a path to a, a good and godly future. So let's get right at it. What role does this short book of Obadiah play in the overall context of the Bible? And of course, there's a backstory. Um, Jacob, as you know, becomes Israel, and Esau. Remember these two brothers that we looked at in Genesis? So Jacob becomes Israel, Esau becomes Edom. And when we pick up this story, there is now centuries of rivalry and bitter hate. And of course, this starts with them wrestling in their mother's womb. Uh, it goes on to Esau selling his birthright to Jacob, to at this point when we're now reading in Obadiah, um, Edom has become the Edomites. They live in these very strong mountainous fortresses. That, therefore, they seem safe and secure. Like if you think of it in military terms, they had the high ground. Israel is in the low ground and is vulnerable. And so the story here is, and the reason there's this sort of long screed against the Edomites, is that when Israel is taken into captivity by Babylon, Edom did nothing to help which, um, those who were essentially her family. Rather, in pride and arrogance, in their seemingly strong, secure, superior position in the mountains, and in a spirit of this you know, generation after generation of animosity, they gloated over Israel's problems and rejoiced in the fall of Jerusalem and actually violently betrayed their neighbors and in greed looted the land that the destroyers left behind doing all this to their extended family. And so this all then amounts to a cruel injustice to the people of God. So Obadiah sees all this. And as we read, uh, this kind of word went out amongst the nations that they started um, militaristically coming against Edom. And this is one of the most important parts of understanding not only just this book, but the, the role of the prophets. You know, if Russia did something, you know, occasionally you'll see a headline, you know, Russian bombers within 30 miles of Alaska or something, you know, or Putin says something crazy, right? And so you'll sometimes hear about, you know, Russia rumbling in Russia, or you'll hear about something that China's doing, and, you know, there'll be a little hand-wringing in America. And what Obadiah and the prophets are saying is that that kind of stuff that happens in human geopolitical history it can sometimes seem like, well, China's up to this, this is their self-interest, this is what's going on, or Russia's up to this in the Balkans, and this is what's going on. And what the prophets want to say is, yeah, okay, fair enough as far as that goes. And, you know, military people write books about it, and economists write books about it, but the prophets want to say, lying behind all that is the hand of God, and that God is superintending human history. And this is the basic message that Obadiah is bringing that Edom was to be judged for her treatment of Israel 
And that after this, so that's first, so just kind of get that. Edom is to be judged. But secondly, and this arises only out of one verse, but still, secondly, that after this period in their history, Israel would recover their true vocation as a royal priesthood and that they would once again become the people of God who will deliver creation from its corruption and death. So essentially what you have happening in this story is that God through movements of nations is protecting his plan and his people. And what you have most concretely, so think of that long litany that you heard Jen read to us and me just summarize. Think of that long litany, got it? Of all the things Edom did to Israel. Eight times in that passage, God said, you should not have. So just hold all that in your mind. And now flash back to Genesis 12, verse three, when God is calling Abraham and he says to Abraham, you know, God's people, Israel, anyone who curses you, remember what God said? I will curse. Anyone who comes against you and what I'm up to on the earth, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if they refuse to align themselves with what I'm doing, then they will be cut off from what I'm doing. And so with all of its human security, Edom, being deceived, didn't realize that while they might have been safe before everybody else, they remained totally vulnerable before the sovereign plan of God and his wisdom, who, in the words of Daniel, this God who is setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So if there were kind of a lesson you might say here on a, on a big worldwide level, not so much us personally, but we'll get to that, Obadiah is simply saying, And this is the way it'll go for any group of people or any person that trusts in its power, its wealth, its military, its technology to have its own way contrary to God's purposes. I mean, Edom actually disappears from the earth. It actually, when this is is all over, when what Obadiah prophesies is done, they're gone as a nation and a culture. And this, of course, is a picture of the seriousness of final judgment of everything that is considered and consistently in opposition to God. So this this doesn't mean people who I drank too much one night or I slept with somebody I shouldn't or I lied at work. That's not what's going on here. This is generation after generation, decade after decade of considered and consistent opposition to God. Now, I say that because I I know what's kind of afloat in our culture today about the Old Testament, and and we might as well just be honest and say it's rarely read. Even Christians have a very hard time these days with the Old Testament. And it's because we live with this kind of dualism that God seems so harsh in the Old Testament. And the New Testament says of Jesus that, you know, he's the exact representation of his father, and he says of himself, I won't snuff out a, a smoldering wick. I won't break a bruised reed. And so the average person who has not actually spent much time thinking about these things carefully is left with this kind of dualism that wonders things like, isn't it harsh and kind of arbitrary of God to have judged Edom in such a severe way? And I get that. I get how any reasonable person would ask that question. It's actually a reasonable question. And there's a reasonable answer. And the reasonable answer is that this is a picture showing us that God is Lord over the nations and over human history. 
and that he is going to bring to pass that which he intended before he ever said, let there be light. Right? Follow me here. God did not say, let there be light out of nowhere. That's not a statement without a context. So then you ask, what is the context? And the question is, what God intended. There was a purpose for light. Light would allow humankind. And God creates finally humankind and says to them, I'm paraphrasing here, you're my cooperative friends. Look at this amazing creation. I'm calling you into it. Well, you know the story, it all goes south. And God raises up Abraham and Israel and says, now you're going to be it. And so when that plan starts getting frustrated, at some point God just says, okay, I get it. You don't want anything to, in your considered and consistent thinking and behavior, you don't want anything to do with what I'm doing. And then, of course, judgment comes. But it's not harsh and arbitrary. It's the exact opposite of arbitrary. It's highly considered on God's part. I'm up to something here. And I can't allow people to destroy the seed of the people from whom the Messiah would come. I can't allow that to be snuffed out. And so I'm protecting what I'm up to. Now, as I said, if you look at verse 21 in uh, your order of service, this really is kind of the, the punchline, you might say, or, or maybe we should say that Obadiah has two main points. One is the, the judgment of Edom's oppression of Israel. But the second one here, verse 21, that the kingdom will be God's. This, in a sense, is the punchline because it means something like this, that, it's, that someday this is all going to be reversed, that Israel, who was formerly in the weak place, will rule over what was formerly Edom. But instead of repaying evil with more evil, instead of keeping the cycle of prejudice and hatred and racism and rivalry, instead of keeping that going, Israel will recognize their true vocation to represent the rule and reign of God. And after this time, they'll rule justly and fairly, a rule that honors and expresses God's kingdom, confident, humble, generous, open servants. Now, I've said before, but I have to say it again in this context. When you use the word Israel, you cannot think of the modern nation state that was created you know, after World War II. That, the, the biblical word for Israel has virtually nothing to do with that. Now, I'm not saying the modern state of Israel is a bad thing. I'm just saying that's not what's being talked about here. When you read the word Israel in this context, you have to think of the people of God. And then just begin to wonder, what would the Middle East be like if not just Jewish believers of whatever kind, whether they're you know, Jewish or Christian, but who believe in Yahweh, and there are Christians all over the Middle East, or we could take North America if we wanted to, or the Western world if we wanted to, and say, what would it be like if the people of God were working with him as confident, meaning we know God's up to something, that's unquestionable, humble in that out of nowhere we were called into this, generous because of the work of the Spirit in us, and open servants. 
I mean, I, you know, I, of course, I keep up on the political dialogue. I mean, I, I know what the good and bad that's said about the modern nation state of Israel and, you know, building houses or not and all that. I, I get all that. But if we just thought about the people of God, what if that's what they were known for? What if all over the Middle East, what these people were known for as um, ambassadors of the kingdom of God who with confident, humble, generous, open spirit serve everybody around them, you know, I sometimes hear, you know, Christians and non-Christians, brilliant theologians, all kinds of people wrestle about what does this land mean in 2015? Like, yeah, we can all draw the lines of what it meant, you know, when God gave them the land and all that, but what does it mean today? Well, what if what it meant was this is a launching pad for doing good all over the world? That the land isn't some sort of, uh, you know, inheritance in the sense of now it's mine to spend, what if the land was, this is a place where you will be provided for milk and honey. And it's a place where you'll be safe. And I've given this to you, not as something for you to hoard, but something from which you can then do good to the rest of the world. This is what you were called to do. Like, remember the creation covenant? Remember the covenant with Abraham, Moses? Right, just think of the thread of that story. And so in the same way that pe modern people criticize how modern Israel might be dealing with that land, you know what I think? I think we equally misunderstand heaven. I think we may misunderstand heaven in parallel ways that Israel does that land. What if heaven was to so secure us in our deepest inner being that we then could be confident yet humble, totally generous, open servants, knowing that God treasures each individual and wants us to do the same. So just think for a moment, picture yourself completely secure, completely cared for, all your provisions are cared for, even your death, so that you're not even actually going to die, and that one day you will be forever in the realm or the sphere of God, heaven. Well, what if that could produce in us then such safety and security and richness that we actually treasured everybody around us? No, you don't have to be a great thinker to just go here with me. Just consider for a moment what attitudes and actions and behaviors treasuring others would immediately make not even in the realm of possibility. Let me give you a couple of just big, easy examples. If human beings actually treasured one another, greatly treasured one another, do you know that pornography would be immediately out of business? There would never be another war. There would never be another corporate hostile takeover. I mean, can we go on? There would never be another brutal divorce. There might be a divorce, but it would never be another brutal divorce. Because when you treasure something, those things are automatically eliminated. You don't ever have to worry again about legalism, being religious. You never have to worry about that ever again. That's what people fall into who their heart doesn't treasure and they try to behave as if it does. That's who falls into legalism. That's who falls into religious stuff. But when you actually genuinely treasure someone, the way the creation covenant and the covenant with Abraham intended, 
when we actually become those kind of people, that kind of a royal priesthood, it changes everything right from the get-go. Well, one other point uh, I wanna make from this, and that is I wanna help you think for a minute about the other side of the coin of the judgment on Edom, because I think this will help you both understand God's judgment or his justice and the effect that it was meant to have on God's people and to have on us. So here's the other side of the coin of God judging Edom. Think about just the beauty of being a child of God, of being chosen in love, and God seeing and knowing what is happening to you. Babylon is overthrowing you, being carried into exile. Now just think about this. Um, yeah, this is, um, say your uncle lives in the same neighborhood as you or something, and, and there's a major earthquake here in Orange County, and you find out that your uncle's family is stealing stuff from your house. That's what was going on here. Uncle Edom and his family are taking advantage of us being overwhelmed by the Babylonians. And so the, the back half of this is God sees it and he knows what's happening to Israel. He knows what's happening to you. So that judgment on Edom isn't just an arbitrary angry God, it's protection and provision for his people. Now that thought, sorry, that experience has been carried down for now hundreds of generations to the time where a great hymnist writes lines like, great is thy faithfulness. That is not first and foremost a theological thought. That is first and foremost an experienced reality. People then theologized out of the experienced reality. Who is this God that's faithful? What is faithfulness? All oh, that's important theology. But it was first an, an existential, it was an experienced reality that morning by morning new mercies I see. So the overall message of the Bible is that someday the kingdoms of this world will be the Lord's. That's verse 21. So what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, then the end will come when after destroying every rule and authority and power, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. This is what John is seeing in his vision in Revelation. For instance, chapter 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And then Revelation 22, 5, and we, God's servants, will reign with him as he reigns forever and ever. So then, now you can begin to understand some of the bits of the Bible that seem moralistic. So just picture Obadiah saying this and the New Testament writers talking about this. So then, 1 Peter, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Or John, don't love the world or anything in the world. The world and its desires pass away but whoever does the will of God lives into this creation and church-like covenant with God, they live forever. Now I know, let's just go back to where we started. This is a strange little book, Obadiah. Um, but you know what's fascinating? That at many points in Israel's history, especially her most distant ancient history, um, 
This story was read as a part of their liturgy or alluded to pretty much every Sunday in various times in Israel's history, which raises the question, why? And I think Walter Brueggemann helps us see this when, I can't remember where Brueggemann wrote this, but it was in one of his books on prophecy where he said, the church meets in part to imagine what human life can be like if the good news of God in Christ redeeming the world were true. So can you see how Israel would read that story and remind themselves that there is the good news of God superintending human history. We would now say with the light of today, with the good news of Christ, we would say that yes, we can now see how in Christ, God is redeeming the world. So this story then was told to them over and over again in their liturgies as a message of encouragement to remind them of their story, and not just for historical religious knowledge, but to produce in them a trust and confidence. Are you feeling that? That they would hear this story and they would realize, I can place my trust in God. I can place my confidence in God. Yeah, China's doing this, or Putin's saying that, or this is happening in Iran, but I can trust and have my confidence in the God who works behind the movements of nations and corporations and peoples and tribes. And he brings, as the Lord of history, superintending all history, he brings it to what he thought of before he said, let there be light. And so they told themselves this story to remind themselves that his great promises remained, that the past and present activities of the nations were not determinative, that they were not going to prevail, and that there's a moral government working in the world that will someday restore God's work and make things right. Now that's some, that's some pretty clear uh, theology, I guess we'd say. But here's what I know is real. It doesn't seem true. That's what's really real. It just does not seem true. The world seems out of control in almost every way you can think of. And so like on first blush, it just, it doesn't seem true. It seems like the forces of personal evil in the world sponsored by Satan seem to be winning. They seem to be taking over society. But now flip the page and look at your gospel reading just for a second, we're almost done. Jesus comes telling these parables. I can't remember. I think there's about 11 main parables of the kingdom or 13. I can't remember. Something like that. Jesus tells these parables, most of which are to remind people about this big, you know, overarching story that God is actually superintending human history. So in this case, Jesus tells the story of this farmer who's out planting the word, meaning that God is working. God is sowing seeds of the kingdom. But some people, when they hear this message, they're like seed that falls on the hardened soil of the road. And this personal evil that lies behind the sort of generic evil in the world snatches away what's been planted in them. So the kingdom is being sowed, but, the, but every page of the gospels is full of spiritual warfare. It's, it's full of kingdoms in conflict. God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. That's on almost every page of the New Testament. And so Jesus is just acknowledging, he's saying, this is what's going on. You hear me sowing the word, but in some cases it's just being snatched away. Others are like seed that lands on gravel 
And that, that kind of mirrors, that, that shallow gravel mirrors the shallow character in them, and they, they can't receive this message of the kingdom. Other people are like those who are cast in the weeds, who in the way weeds can overwhelm um, plants, that these people are overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, strangles what they heard, and nothing comes of it. But Jesus says other people, they hear this message of God and his kingdom, and they're like seed that's planted in good earth. And this represents those who hear the word, who embrace it, and it produces in them a harvest beyond their wildest dreams. Now, if we weren't reading through Mark in ordinary time, and we're reading through Matthew, and we had read this in Matthew 13, there would have been a little thing that would have helped us understand this a bit more. Because in Matthew's telling of this story, in both the first paragraph and the last paragraph, he explains it by, he has Jesus explaining it by saying that this all turns on understanding, that some people hear it and they don't understand it and it doesn't bear any fruit. And then there are some who hear it and they understand it. Now again, understanding here does not mean intellect. I mean, there are billions of people on this earth who do not have the intellect to understand this. And for some of us in this room, it might even be hard. So the Greek term here for understanding is not first and primarily about being able to grasp things intellectually. It's a, it, the word means something like putting together. It's a more of an imaginative word where, you're, where somebody's able to kind of join facts and ideas into a comprehensive or think of a puzzle like an interlocking whole so that somewhere deep within them, they arrive at a kind of a summary or final understanding that allows confidence and faith and therefore obedient followership. That's what's in view here. It's not intellectual work. It's mostly a, an, an ability to see what God is up to, to see your invitation into it, and then go there. And it's this understanding then that produces the sense of being God's chosen people and being on mission, and that then gives us the understanding of what it means to be the people of God. So that's what Jesus was shooting for, sowing a kind of understanding. So as we come to our quiet moment, I want you to let your eyes fall upon verse 21 of Obadiah and this vision that now for many, many, many generations with all the ups and downs of human history in every way, politically, ethnically, economically, that the vision here is the kingdom will be the Lord's and implied, and we will be his people. So I wonder if you could just let your eyes stay upon that meditatively and begin to wonder, what would it mean for us to take up our vocation as ambassadors of the kingdom of God? And in our spheres of influence, to act justly, to love mercy, and to live fruitfully. Let me say again. What might it mean for us to take up our vocation as ambassadors of the kingdom of God and in our spheres of influence to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly and fruitfully with our God?